when I do videos of it, I tear a dollar bill in half and I say, this is what we're doing. We're taking this dollar and we're losing all our money in the hopes of getting some kind of social good. And in this half of the dollar, we're investing our money, doing no social good, sometimes negative, I think, hope I'm making money. And I just encourage people to think differently. Like, it's not a binary choice. You know, you can have your cake and eat it too, or make different trade points along the way, you know, between doing good and making money. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Bill Strathman, longtime CEO at Network for Good, and now general manager for that firm at Bonterra. Bill spent more than a decade building a nonprofit that's served small nonprofits with technology for processing contributions and more. He spun that out as a for-profit networkforgood.com, still owned by the .org, grew that, and ultimately sold it. His story is very interesting and full of lessons for entrepreneurs in the civic space. So after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Bill Strathman, now at Bonterra. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, Bill. Hey, how you doing, Nathaniel? I'm good. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? I'm Bill Strathman. I'm the uh, former CEO of Network for Good in terms of biography. Do you want professional or personal or a combo? Where'd you grow up in education, career, the whole shebang? Yeah. I'll give you the high level. The story is someone who wanted to make a difference, sold out, had a wake-up call, made a difference. <laughs> the age-old story. <laughs> the age-old story. I'm from the D.C. metro area. Went to high school in D.C., Went to college uh, outside of Philly at a small liberal arts college called Haverford College. Good school. I was a tree-hugging philosophy major, playing hacky sack in the quad. Probably could have focused a little more on academics than I did. I got out of uh, Haverford. Philosophy major doesn't exactly project you into the uh, business world or any job other than a philosophy professor, I guess. And uh, I wasn't wanting that gig. So I got a job with a healthcare startup in the D.C. metro area, and I kind of caught the business bug, but I was still bleeding green. I still felt that kind of tree hugger calling me, and I thought, well, business would be a cool way to affect the environment in a positive way. So I went to business school at UVA at the Darden School, four years out of college, and got my MBA. And that's the point where I sold out and took a job with Arthur Anderson as a management consultant. 
Are you ashamed of that? No. When I got out of business school, I was kind of talking to my mom about what to do. And I had been involved in lots of the entrepreneurship programs and marketing programs at Darden and clubs and what have you. And I was considering pursuing those ventures. I had a business plan for a green company and everything. And I decided that I could always do that, but it was rare to get that kind of postgraduate degree that a management consulting job offers in so many ways. I mean, working in different industries, working in different functions within companies and providing different solutions just gave a multitude of different experience bases. And so, so I don't, I don't, uh, I'm not embarrassed and, and don't regret it. Um, in fact, it served me incredibly well. I um, mean, I can kind of tell more about, you know, what kind of what happened and why. Tell me both about the MBA and about the management consulting. What did you take away that was formative and useful from those two things that you did that prepare one for a life in business? I'll start with the MBA. Uh, I intentionally chose Darden because it focuses very much on the professors being good teachers, not just publishing, and class participation. I mentioned that I could have applied myself more academically in college. I wanted to put constraints on myself to apply myself in business school and not, you know, goof off too much because it was a much more directed career focused move to go to business school. 50% of your grade was class participation wow. and they cold call you, right? Wow. And yeah. it was three cases a day is case method like Harvard. And, and it was three cases a day. So you had to be prepared because the professor could just say, Hey, Bill Strathman, you know, you're in charge of marketing for Heinz ketchup. What's your plan? So you couldn't, you know, not prepare. So that was good for me because it made me uh, uh, study. It was very intense, it was small. And so um, I think there are two things that uh, I benefited from in business school. One, the other piece about Darden was it was very general management focused. You got a, a breadth of experiences. I thought that was extremely valuable for entrepreneurs and CEOs. It was kind of known for being kind of a pressure cooker with lots of work. And so you learned a lot. But more importantly, I think in many ways, I formed incredible relationships with my classmates. You had this bond where you're just going through this pressure cooker together. So that established some great relationships. I actually hired one of my classmates years later who still works with Network for Good and the company that acquired us. The jack of all trades, master of none was key for me, or jack of all trades, master of business, I guess, was key for me at, uh, at Darden. Actually, the other thing at Darden is I was kind of a little bit unique in that I believe that businesses at the time, this is, you know, 93, 95 timeframe. I believe that business had a broader responsibility than just to generate shareholder, unlike kind of Milton Friedman's, that's just financial returns thing. And so there was, uh, Darden was kind of a first mover with a guy named Ed Freeman, a professor of ethics down there around, is there a broader uh, set of responsibilities? And Darden still continues to lead in that space and the kind of social, socially responsible business space. So that was actually key as well, because I was kind of a wackadoo in my viewpoint, but not as much as I would have been at other business schools. And so it afforded me to, you know, do internships like uh, over the summer, I did an internship at the Management Institute for Environment and Business, which was focused on combining environment and business and it was later acquired by World Resources Institute. So those are some of the benefits of the specific business school I chose. At Arthur Anderson, it, it's kind of the, the it was a similar piece. Uh, when I joined Arthur Anderson Business Consulting, it was part of the audit practice. Anderson Consulting had been separating 
from Arthur Anderson. And I was on the audit side in a new business consulting practice. And what that gave me was the ability to cross industries, like I mentioned, job functions, and provide different types of business solutions. Everything from business process reengineering to internet strategy as that became a thing. And so that served me really well because on my fourth day with Arthur Anderson, when I kind of decided to pursue the almighty dollar and the partner track at Anderson rather than trying to make the world a better place and kind of give back at that stage of my career. On my fourth day with Anderson, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. She was uh, 53 when she was diagnosed. So she died seven months later at 54. Oh my God. I'm about to turn 55. So I've now outlived her uh, looking back. And so that was a big uh, kick in the ass. And then three years later, my uh, mother-in-law died of cancer uh, at the age of 57. And so for the guy who's kind of like wanting to use business as a force for good, it was kind of a wake-up call. Um, Just about the shortness of life. And, the shortness of life, uh, you never know. And if, you know, like if you're only going to be on the planet for 55 years, you might want to get busy making the impact you want to make rather than postponing it for future time, which is the decision I had made. Now, I didn't leave Arthur Anderson. Uh but it changed my trajectory in a variety of ways. And I was lucky to be at a firm that enabled me to, to do that. So what I mean by changing my trajectory is I did keep my job at Anderson. I didn't leave and go do something else at that point. I, I stayed at Anderson for about eight or nine years until it actually went under with Enron scandal, which is part of my story. <laughs> I started running marathons and doing triathlons to raise money for cancer. Um, I started joining local nonprofit boards like the Anacostia Watershed Society. And then I started a nonprofit practice within Arthur Anderson. So consulting two nonprofits on all the things that for-profits face, uh, that nonprofits also face, but were just a little less resource to address. And so that's where I developed my kind of expertise, if you will, in the field of, of nonprofits was at Arthur Anderson. I built a practice within Arthur Anderson serving nonprofits right as the internet began to boom, you know, because I was there from 95 to 2003. Did it become bearing point? So yeah, good, 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 uh, good memory. So Arthur Anderson business consulting, Arthur Anderson, you know, went out of business, 86,000 people lost their jobs overnight or were acquired by somebody else. The business consulting group was a part of those 86,000 people as was I, but we were acquired Business Consulting was acquired by Bearing Point, which was formerly KPMG Consulting. I think it was in March of 2002 or sometime around 2002, we all went to Bearing Point Consulting. Was that much different? It was. It was not as great a firm as was Arthur Anderson. Arthur Anderson was known. It was actually kind of ironic. Uh, Arthur Anderson was known for investing in his people, having fantastic training. You know, it was famous for having a St. Charles training center out in St. Charles outside of Chicago. Um, really invested. It basically hired folks with, who had the critical behaviors that it wanted to identify and then teach them to be good consultants. And in fact, it was so well known for that, that before Bearing Point acquired Arthur Anderson, when it was KPMG Consulting, KPMG ran these, what I thought were actually pretty fantastic ads poking fun at Arthur Anderson because KPMG hired industry experts, right? And uh, because they're Rolodex ostensibly and their biz dev abilities. And so KPMG, when I was at Arthur Anderson, ran an ad where it had a bunch of kids chasing a school bus. And it said, are these your kids or your consultants? 
kind of pointing out that the average <laughs> Ashley Anderson consultant was a lot younger. It's like, well, what do they know about your business? You know, but what we knew was how to really do business process reengineering. We knew internet strategy. And so, you know, the kind of network and uh, industry knowledge wasn't as important. So bearing point, I didn't love it as much. And then also, in addition to having nonprofit expertise, I was also a merger expert, merger integration expert, mostly with for-profits. And so I was just starting to have little kids when Bearing Point acquired us. Um, they loved my merger expertise. They didn't really put my nonprofit expertise to work. And so they kind of put me on planes, whereas I had been able to consult to a lot of nonprofits in the D.C. metro area and not travel as much. And so the combination of the culture change, it was also not a partnership. So on the money side, it was a public company, Bearing Point. Um, and it was a one-trick pony. It just had consulting. So there wasn't a diversity of revenue streams. Like Arthur Anderson had audit tax consulting. So for a variety of reasons, like, you know, economic, work-life balance, and the culture, I was kind of itching to leave once we landed at Bearing Point. So what's the founding story for Net- Network for Good? So I always say I'm not the founder. I'm kind of the adopted dad. There's this guy that most people know named Steve Case and, and his wife, Jean Case, who are really attributed to working with a guy named David Eisner, who was running their foundation at the time, went back when they were at AOL. So I didn't found it. I was the adopted dad of a two and a half year old. And the founding story was, well, I'll start with my piece because I didn't know it existed when it was founded. Um, I only discovered it when it was two and a half. So I'm here at Bearing Point and I'm a road warrior doing mergers and not kind of, you know, working for my passion of trying to help nonprofits. And I, uh, I ran the Chicago Marathon in 2003, fall 2003. What kind of time? Uh, actually, I'm glad you asked because it was my PR. Uh, <laughs> it was 2.53. Wow. 2.53. That's exceptionally fast. It was the second time I broke broke three hours. Yeah, those those days are behind me now. I mean, I still run, but there's no way I could do a uh, marathon that fast now. I'm on to long, longer distances now where I don't have to run as fast, but I can just run long. <laughs> what's, the, what, what's your longest distance? A uh, 50 miler. I did a 50 mile trail run uh, called Bull Run. That's my longest distance. Anyway, continue with the story. So I ran the Chicago Marathon and when I was registering, there was a website for the first time, believe it or not, this is 2003, where you had kind of the opportunity to create a tribute page for somebody who lost to cancer with the stuff that's very common now on Facebook and other places where you can obviously raise money for with a thermometer and the goal and send it to your friends effortlessly. But it was like very new and it was only available to large nonprofits that are partnering with the LaSalle Bank and, uh, and, and Marathon. And so I thought, you know, I was immediately hooked. I was doing internet strategy with nonprofits and I thought, well, this is so cool and I thought of my little board membership at uh, Anacostia Watershed Society, and I thought, well, God, wouldn't it be great if I could just have a dinner party with a bunch of couples, and instead of having to bring a bottle of wine, I could send an evite and say, skip the bottle of wine, click here, and donate to the Anacostia Watershed Society, right? Just make it totally effortless. This probably resonates with you. Well, there were there were a number of people doing that sort of thing at the time, right? It was. It was just yeah. starting to. It, it was just starting to happen. And so I didn't know that. Um, and they were few and far between. I mean, there's no one big doing it. And, and, and there were very few focusing on the small nonprofits. So what I learned, so I started to, you know, pound away at the business plan. And I got to page five and I decided I should look at, you know, your question. I was like, well, who's doing it already? Uh, a little market research. 
Yeah, exactly. Maybe to put that on page one, step one, instead of step, you know, after you start uh, doing the business plan, but lesson learned. So um, I discovered that Network for Good, founded by Steve Case where and uh, an AOL foundation, had reached out to Cisco and Yahoo, and they had two goals. One was to help small nonprofits get on the e-commerce bandwagon and be on the right side of the digital divide. And the other one was to have a destination website where you could give to any charity in one place. So they had created this really cool model and they had funded it with a $10 million grant, five from Cisco, five from AOL, and then lots of in-kind media in the form of PSA from AOL and Yahoo, PSAs. And so they were two and a half years old and they built this really cool system, but they didn't have a business plan and they had essentially run out of money. And so AOL, Yahoo, and Cisco were kind of sitting there thinking, all right, are we going to kind of double down and continue this or just kind of cut and run? And that's an exaggeration. But so they're looking to see, and maybe not double down exactly, because they never fully doubled down. Like it didn't, they didn't contribute another 10 million, but they did. They were looking for a CEO who could help kind of turn it around. And, uh, And so I knew someone on the board who was a nonprofit representative on the board. And a woman named Elisa Gravitz, who ran uh, what was then called Co-op America, now Green America. She said, and I said, hey, Elisa, I'm thinking about starting a competing entity. I'm going to do a for-profit. She said, don't. We need a turnaround guy. You'd be perfect. Because she and I you know, knew each other from the Anacostia Watershed Society. And so I jumped on a plane to interview with Yahoo and Cisco folks and, and here in D.C. with AOL folks and took the job on February 9th, 2004. And it was a nonprofit. It was a nonprofit, had about seven staff. Uh, we were distributing about 15 million, 16 million a year to nonprofits, but it was February and we weren't going to make payroll in June. So tell me about the turnaround that you engineered. <laughs> I was in a hurry because uh, <laughs> we didn't have a lot of time. So fortunately, you know, Network for Good. And there's actually a uh, Harvard Business School case on the formation of Net for Good when AOL was trying to decide whether and to whom they reached out to create this broader asset for the sector. Fortunately, they decided to be a more inclusive with not just other corporations like Yahoo and Cisco, but they also reached out to nonprofit leadership and board representatives, as well as like Lisa Gravitz, as well as funders. And the funders for the most part, on the philanthropic side, stood on the sideline. So that's why it was funded just by Cisco and, and AOL with dollars. And the reason I bring it up is that there had been folks who had been kind of watching on the sidelines and seeing, like, hey, is this going to be a corporate philanthropy player? Is this really going to be a sector-wide initiative? So I went to those folks first. I'm actually reminded I'm, I'm at uh, our farmhouse in Kempton, Pennsylvania right now, which is Nowhere PA. And just a quick side story, which is relevant to this phase, is I was desperately seeking folks who could fund and who had been watching Network for Good in the foundation world, the Hewlett Foundations, the Ford Foundations, Cerdna Foundation. And there was a guy, the Cerdna Foundation, who had been kind of watching Network for Good. And so I weaseled my way into the Council of Foundations Conference, which, you know, you're only supposed to be there if you're a grant maker, which we were not. I got 15-minute coffee with this guy, Vince Staley, at Cerdna Foundation. And so he's like, tell me about yourself. And I said, well, I fancy myself an environmentalist. He says, how? I say, well, I've got this farmhouse in Pennsylvania and we have it in this environmental recovery program where we don't farm it. 
He says, where in Pennsylvania? I said, oh, about 100 miles west of uh, Manhattan. You've never heard of it. He's like, is it uh, near Allentown? I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's about 20 miles outside of Allentown. He's like, is it near Kempton, Pennsylvania? I'm like, <laughs> How the heck do you know Kempton, Pennsylvania? He says, oh, my sister lives there. You know, she lives in this schoolhouse. I'm like, oh, I uh, I go running by a schoolhouse. There's this old dog that comes and I have to beat it to the turn before it comes to get me. And he says, uh, is it a Sharpay mix? <laughs> uh, yeah. He says, oh, that'd be Elvis. That's my dog. It's, it's better to be lucky than to be good. You know, you just kind of form that that connection. And so certain ended up being one of the foundations. I mean, we were a fit for their program, but it helped to have that kind of a mission, you know, immediate personal connection. Uh, and Vince is still a good friend. Uh, uh, he and I have both moved on to other other pursuits. But uh, well, I guess I haven't really. Uh, <laughs> he has. In any event, we managed to get the kind of emergency money to keep the lights on. Um, and then... From 2004 to 2011, raised another $10 million over those seven years from corporate foundations. So AOL and Yahoo and Cisco continued to contribute, just not at the initial levels. Foundations that I've mentioned contributed and high net worth individuals. So we actually went to some of the folks who were the entrepreneurs that started the companies like Steve Case and Ted Leonsis and Jerry Yang and Chambers and those folks and uh, John Chambers. Some of those high net worth individuals actually funded it personally as well. But the real important piece that we did during that time period, uh, those kind of eight years, was we built a business model. Because I'm passionate about social enterprise and business as a force for good. And we had the makings of a fantastic model that we just hadn't leveraged yet. So what we did was during those seven years is I mentioned earlier, there are two things we're trying to do. One was help small nonprofits and the other was help to uh, provide a way for consumers to give. It was really hard to have a business model uh, providing a way for consumers to give because for the most part, aside from political campaigns, as you know, the most part, they only thought about it like once a year, right? Or in the time of disaster, on December 31st or in time of disaster. Whereas nonprofits, our other option in terms of serving them more directly, they thought about it every day. You know, the ask side, not the give side, the fundraising. And so that was a key decision point um, was, okay, it's hard to create a marketplace, right? Even with the resources and asset and partners we had. Um, So maybe choose one side of that marketplace. We chose small nonprofits and we chose to, at the time, provide them with either a free donation page where they just had a transaction fee that covered the transaction costs, but then we added up a, a little bit additional fee. We took a tiny piece uh, as a revenue stream of the transaction fee, which, you know, at that time, folks were afraid to do because they thought people would just write checks. You know, there wasn't the level of trust in e-commerce there is today, as I know you know. And then um, and then we offered a more customized, configurable donation page that looked more like their website for a subscription fee. And so that was the beginning of the business model was subscription fees and transaction fees so that we could cover at least a portion of our expenses. I guess I've gathered from other conversations I've had with you that you then went on to build more software capacity for helping these sort of nonprofits. We did. There was one key milestone before we made that kind of pivot to broadening our reach to providing, you know, more stuff like donor management, email marketing, text, 
auctions, events, that kind of thing. Before that pivot, we made a structural pivot that was fundamental because we ran into kind of a wall. We slowly built up with the subscription fees from the donation pages and the transaction fees from the, the gifts. We slowly built up a revenue stream so that we could cover our expenses. And by about 2011, we got to the point where we were breaking even on earned revenue, which, as you probably know, for a nonprofit is an enviable position. I actually was a little incredulous about our ability to get to 100%. I figured we'd get close. but And so we got there, and, the, and so that was great, but it was uh, kind of double-edged swords. We were kind of victims of our own success because when we went to the same funders, i.e. donors, philanthropy, for now what would be growth capital – because we had the keeping the lights on expenses covered with our earned revenue. They said, hey, Bill, I got a guy in the waiting room who's trying to eradicate malaria. There's no business model for that. So he's going to get my million dollars. And by the way, he's on the front lines eradicating malaria. You're helping the helpers, which is laudable. But so from an impact standpoint and from a need standpoint, that kind of dried up. The concept of growth philanthropy was new and is still not anywhere near the dollars of for-profit investment, just a quick aside, and that's just, I, I, I strongly believe that, and this was kind of what we did, I strongly believe that if you have the opportunity to solve a social problem and there's a viable business model that you've discovered to do so, you should pursue a for-profit structure. I almost feel like we have a moral imperative to pursue that. Not everybody agrees with me on this, but I feel like you, we need to leave the charitable dollars to the nonprofits who are solving social problems that just today don't have a business solution. That's an interesting point. I haven't heard it put that way before. And so now that wasn't the sole reason we did it, but we decided that we should look at in 2012 spinning out a for-profit. Because I basically said to the board, listen, we can continue to coast along and serve, you know, and distribute about I don't know where we were, maybe distributing about 30 million a year at the time uh, and break even and not grow. But I'm probably not the guy for that, you know, to kind of like just coast here. I said, but if we want to unleash generosity on a massive scale, we need growth capital, about 10 million. Um, and we need to unleash network for good, because if you can't get growth capital from donations, we weren't going to get it from debt. Right. And we weren't going to get it from our excess revenue. There's equity. You can't have equity in a nonprofit. So you spun this out rather than converting. converting? Yeah. 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 So that was important, actually. So there are two reasons we, we spun it out rather than converting. Uh, for one, it's easier if you have a place to put the value of the company in a charitable uh, entity. In other words, if we spin it out and then down the road you sell it, then the ownership stake that the nonprofit has it can still go back to a charitable use. I, I see. So your nonprofit owned a good portion of the for-profit. Let's call them neverforgood.org and neverforgood.com, right? Yep. Neverforgood.org, before we spun it out, pre-spin out, was owner and operator. And so what we basically did is we say, okay, we're going to take all the business and technology and customers and create a .com that's the operator, and you.org are essentially going to be and this oversimplifies it because they did more, and I, I can talk about that if we have time, but .org became the owner. And so now on day one, .org is 100% owner 
of .com. Okay, well, that doesn't get you anything, but now you have a for-profit that investors can invest in and have ownership stake in. In addition, the other obstacle we had at Never For Good at the time, .org, in terms of uh, hitting a wall, was not just growth capital, but attracting talent. It wasn't all talent, and it was just simply because like, if you want technology folks and sales and marketing folks, generally those are the ones we had the most trouble attracting. They're just not looking at a .org one ad, right? Even though we are we are kick-ass, high-performance, business-driven kind of social enterprise, we had that .org domain, so they just assumed, you know. And assume no, and assume no upside, no profit no sharing, we no bonuses. We equity. paid cash bonus. Yeah, we paid cash bonuses at .org, but we couldn't offer equity. You couldn't have an ownership stake because a nonprofit isn't owned by anybody. And so that enabled us to give investors ownership and attract growth capital where they, they are going to invest because they're going to want to, uh, either get dividends or sell the company. Remind me to come back to the dividend thing, but also attracting talent, giving uh, folks ownership stake. And so that's the first thing we did actually is .org spun it out. They own 100%. We carved out you know, a, a, a substantial piece of equity for employees. And we did it for everybody, every employee down to the administrative assistant. And, uh, and so that, so .org gets diluted, say down to 75% or something, you know, directionally. And then, uh, and then you go and, and then we go to investors. And actually, what .org did was smart. My board was smart. They said, "Bill, love the idea, but before you do it, why don't you prove to me that some investor is going to invest in this thing?" <laughs> and also, we got it appraised too, so just to have belt and suspenders. Because the key thing when you spin out a company out of a four, of a nonprofit asset is asset. There are two key things. One, nobody benefits individually. Like Bill Strathman can't be rich overnight, right? And two. Uh, you got to get fair market value. The nonprofit's got to get fair market value. So we had it appraised, but you know, just like your house, like appraisal is one thing, but getting an offer really dictates market value. So before we spun it out, I've kind of modeled it and I said, hey, if we spun out a company like this and I went to private equity firms, at first I tried to find impact money, but it was so small. There's so few players. I found a few high net worth individuals that helped me kind of get the makings of uh, spinning up. It sounds like this is how you're pricing it partially is what exactly. they, what yes. Exactly. Well, you're pricing it and from a fair market value standpoint, you're proving that, yeah, this is what it's worth. But also like, we don't want to go through all the trouble of spinning out this organization just to find out that it's not an investable asset. Nobody's interested, right? Um, so I got actually three term sheets before we spun it out. We ended up not going with any of them. For a variety of reasons, the first two we walked, the last one they walked, but then we still spun it out because we knew we had a, an asset that folks were interested in. And so I, I, I found a few folks uh, who would help me do a convertible note that would give me about a year to do a qualified financing of the $10 million. Your previous work comes in handy here a little bit. There you go. So um, now, now the thing is, it sounds kind of slimy and shifty to take a nonprofit and convert or spin it out into a for-profit, right? I mean, on the surface, like to the layperson, because it feels like, you know, you're taking the nonprofit for a ride. And so that's, that's one of the reasons they have the IRS as the rules of the fair market value, for example, right? Or, or I've always wondered about like the notion of using charitable money to build a business asset and then switch it over. I used to be annoyed when I was run, back running NGP software, when I had competitors that uh, like Salsa 
which was built originally Democracy in Action as a nonprofit and then flipped over one of your competitors, really. And it always felt like... Now we're part of the same family, right? Now we're all part of the same family. (laughs) It always just felt like a little bit of of a slate of hand or something. Well, so yeah. So let me, let me, let me do a counterpoint to that because yep. <laughs> <laughs> that was the, that was the perception I was worried about. What I believed is that the money that donors gave was to achieve the mission. And each year we achieve that mission. We help nonprofits raise more money. We drove more donations to charity. So I could show you the kind of 10x return I got for donors in terms of the dollars that the nonprofits raised with the platform. Now, yes, you did build an asset, but you get the value for that asset when it gets sold, right? That's why the fair market value is so important. So so I believe it's like, well, yeah, but your donations for, let's take Democracy in Action, they achieved their mission each year while you were giving, right? Well, those donor dollars have been fulfilled. And now if they spin out an asset, it's going to come back to, and that's why your, your first question about like you spun it out instead of converting it. Well, one of the great things is like, because now.org is a place that those assets, because we haven't gotten this part of the story, but have now returned because .org sold, we, we eventually sold uh, Network for Good. So anyway, uh, the piece I was going to mention is that just to your point of like people kind of scratching their heads saying, wait, you did what? I'm used to having a company be so successful that it creates a foundation. I'm not used to having a business so successful that it creates a company. But it does happen. It does happen. It happened yeah. us. Yeah. And so we were very, very focused on making sure that not only we were by the book, but that we did things to make sure that Bill Strathman didn't do the Anakin Skywalker thing and go to the dark side, right, and become Darth Vader, uh, or sell or that the networkforgood.com right now spun out, didn't start to power casino gambling or whatever. So we did a lot of stuff to make sure that um, we locked in that mission, but didn't scare away investors who might not be impact investors, might be hardcore, I want a financial return, and it's it's nice that you're doing good things along the way kind of thing. I assume that you were able to get some equity in the dot com. Yes, I was able to get some equity, um, but there was a limit to what e- equity I got, just like in terms of our compensation as well, because this is the rule about Bill Strathman can't make money overnight. And I didn't. Uh, it's called private inurement. Uh, you can't have private inurement. And so um, you had to benchmark all the compensation, right, and the equity. And so rather than getting the founder's equity that you had in your company, right? Because you started it yourself. Really, the founder was the nonprofit.org. I got the kind of equity that more of a hired gun, like the new CEO would get, like, right? So like with your company, founded it. And then when you were done, like you did, hire CEO, you'd give that new CEO equity that was not close to what you had, but was enough to, you know, was benchmarked. And so that's, so that's, so I did get equity, but it was more like as a professional CEO hired gun, even though I had been running it for 10 years. <laughs> right. That's typically like around 10%. It depends how far along the company is. Sure. So I'd say anywhere between four and 10%. I think six to eight was more the range that, I, you know, put generous in the ballpark. So one of the thing, things that was key is, uh, is, is in my 10 years as the CEO of NetForGood.org, the nonprofit, I earned what I earned for that. I could not get 
for spinning it out or for those previous 10 years, any benefit, financial benefit. Got it. Um, it's a pretty regulated situation. Yeah. yeah. Yes. But those are the two primary things. Fair market value, yeah. .org get fair market value and no private endearment. So nevertheless, it must have been exciting as a MBA and a person who was interested in entrepreneurship and company building to have the chance to have a for-profit thing now to build. How did you feel about that whole thing? Oh, so great. Because when I took the job in Air for Good, I was satisfied in many ways. I was making a life change to trade financial success for life significance, you know, at, at an earlier age than I probably would have had not, my mom not passed away and my mother-in-law not passed away. And that felt really good. Like I was walking the walk, you know what I mean? Just this kind of angst about, wow, I, I really hate that I had to give up that talented folks who wanted to make a difference. And this is at the time. Now it's changed a lot. So we still have a long way to go. You had to trade income and equity to do it. And so I was not only excited personally for myself, but just for all the people that worked with Network for Good all our employees. Um, in fact, I'm so passionate about the, the, the not having to trade between those two when you invest, when you take a job. Like, I, like I, I just think that like, it's like capitalism is, it's like, you know, what Churchill said about democracy, you know, capitalism is, is the worst system on the planet except for all the others that have been tried. And so this was a piece that was really exciting to me because I was already using all my business acumen, you know, uh, to, at, when we were a nonprofit, there's no difference there. It was the kind of having to take the big financial haircut um, and having to having the, the obstacle of attracting top talent. How does this affect your your ambition? How does it actually affect hiring and raising money? And like, tell me about how how things now change. When we spun it out, fortunately, because of all the things we did to keep you know, mission alignment without scaring away the money, essentially. There were a lot of things that were the same. One of the key differences, though, was the governance structure. I'm not blaming the nonprofit governance structure for this. There are good reasons that nonprofit boards are structured the way they are. You know, they say about nonprofit boards, you want to you know, stay off the front page, but get on the style page. And, uh, there's a level of being risk averse that I think is good, you know, because there are no individual shareholders at the table. You are representing John Q. Public as a board member of a nonprofit, right? But when you have a private equity funded for-profit, and we had intentionally structured it where we had two board members from the nonprofit owner, two board members from the new investors, private equity firm, and me. I was a swing vote. And the ability to operate with speed and the kind of willingness to take risk and almost, you know, there's almost the opposite. It's like grow faster, utilize this capital faster. You know, I think that was the biggest shift that I didn't really expect because I felt like we were a pretty business driven nonprofit. You know, we were pretty fast moving. Uh, we were a bunch of entrepreneurs. We had a lot of corporate representation on our board, but that was a, that was a, a, a big difference. One question about that. You mentioned some of the kind of elite folks in the DC area, Case and Leonsis. 
were they involved now to, or did they have any, like, how did, how did they see this change from something in case, you know, for particularly case who had been part of getting it going? They were super supportive uh, in some ways, monetarily and uh, other ways as cheerleaders and evangelists. Um, so, uh, there were absolutely no issues there. They were absolutely aligned. And in uh, some cases, some came along in small ways in terms of investing in the you know, networkforgood.com. How was your success in raising capital now that you have changed your structure? And where did it come from? We did two rounds. So seven months after um, spinning it out, I mentioned I had done a convertible note that gave me about a year of runway to, to raise the $10 million. We did a, a 10 million Series A uh, in April of 2014, and then another 10 million dollar round. You know, grew with that, and then another 10 million dollar round five five years later with another private equity firm. And in fact, the first private equity firm was so happy with it that they co-invested alongside of the new investor. And that was 2019. And then a little sooner than we had anticipated, we actually ended up selling the company, which from a non-profit spinning out, out had, a, had a great story because before spinning out networkforgood.com from .org, we had distributed almost a billion dollars to charities. After spinning it out, we did another three and a half billion. So in terms of measuring impact, in terms of distributed dollars to charity, it worked, right? Like every year we were achieving the nonprofit's mission. And then they received multiple times their initial asset value, they being .org, uh, when we sold it. When you say distributed a billion dollars, are you talking about what the nonprofit raised through your app? Or are you talking about some other kind of distribution? So, so, so we power donations for hundreds of thousands of charities. And we're talking about the money that went to those charities. So most of it, so, so some of it was, in times of disaster, when consumers gave, and but most of it was the nonprofits using our platform to raise the money. Okay, so that's an interesting way to put it. I never thought of, like, I never would have said with NGP, we distributed uh, billions of dollars to political campaigns because they used our processing platform or whatever. Right. But I, I get what well, you're saying. Well, it's a little bit different, though, yeah. right? Right. So, so uh, political campaigns are not five one c threes. They don't have a charitable mission. I don't know who you guys powered, but we were explicitly focused on the little guys. So it wasn't like we were powering donations to a well-resourced large nonprofit. It's It was lots of little donations to small nonprofits that at the beginning, there wasn't a really easy way for them to get on the e-commerce bandwagon. So I hear what you're saying, um, but it's a slight difference from the political campaign piece. Well, yeah, it would be the same thing as like Act Blue says... Right. You know, billions of dollars went through Act Blue to Democratic campaigns, right? Well, it's, yeah, but but this was software that, you know, and this is the pivot that we didn't talk about. In 2015, after raising our first round, we expanded our services. And so we not only provided the payment engine, but the software, you know, our software is almost like mad libs for fundraising. It basically had the all this all, all, all the stuff we had learned about how to do fundraising baked in. And we uh, bought a business of personal fundraising coaches that would help them along the way. So we were really powering and helping these nonprofits raise more than they would have with just getting like PayPal for their website, if you will. But so, it, but it's the same uh, 
It's the same world as Get Active, Convio, Blackboard, Salsa. They're all powering nonprofit fundraising through a CRM and associated Correct. donation right. abilities. The, and- the, key, the key difference is twofold. One, we were serving the little guys. I know all of those companies. Well, Black very well. bought another, bought a firm that served little guys or more than one, and like so, th- th- all of them had little guys too. I'm not, I'm not trying to diminish what you, what you're doing. Right. I just there's no one who was serving this, this the average size nonprofit as we were at scale. You're the long tail product. We were the long tail product, exactly, exactly. Um, and so there was a mission part there, and then also. Um, the personal fundraising coaches that we added, there was no one doing it the way we were doing it uh, at scale. One of the smart ways to get into a market, a software as a service market, is to find a product that is needed by the long tail, like donation processing, and then aggregate functionality for the long tail, for the small ones, and then over time kind of move up the market as you could serve broader uh, group that was in the cards. Did you end up moving up the market or did you pretty much stay with the small enterprises? We pretty much stayed with the small enterprises, but it depends on what you mean by small. And so I'll tell you a little story about that. When I mentioned the pivot where we launched a broader set of software solutions and personal fundraising coaching for small nonprofits. That included donor management, email marketing, everything you need, nothing you don't. And it was uh, super simple and easy to use, which was pivotal. When we launched it, we sold it to any small nonprofit who wanted it. What we found was we had higher than average churn after about a year later. We kind of dug in. We said, why do we have such high churn? Because we thought it was pretty great software and easy to use. And they raised more money than they would without it. Turned out it was a tale of two cities. The very, very micro nonprofits who didn't have 50 donors, right? They just didn't need it. They could get by with PayPal and Excel spreadsheet. And so the nonprofits who had maybe 100 donors, and we're talking, you know, we could serve a small nonprofit who is as small as like $100,000 annual operating budget. But if you got and below one, that- And one person operating right. it. One person. We even have organizations that succeed that have all volunteers, right? But you had to have a decent donor list. And when I say decent, I'm talking 50 to 100 donors, right? So we did find that the little, little guys were churning like crazy. And the, you know, rabbits, not the mice, if you will, were doing just fine and retaining and succeeding with our software. That's such a huge market, Nathaniel, and so much of a need where, you know, these smaller nonprofits, not the super micro ones, but the small nonprofits, a lot of the software that was out there and is still out there is just not built for them. It is too complicated. It is not intuitive enough and it doesn't have enough baked in knowledge. And so that's really where we kind of shine. That was the gap that we kind of filled was looking out for the little guy, but providing something that's built for them and just had what they needed, not not more than that. So how how was your growth over this period? We grew in the 35 to 40% range every year once we spun it out. Um, and uh, I measure that growth both on, both on in terms of the, our mission metric that you might argue with on uh, dollars distributed, as well as obviously our, uh, our revenue growth. 
tell me about the decision to sell it and how you went about that. When we raised the money, and this comes back to a former point I mentioned around dividends. When we raised the money, you know, there are two ways for your investors to get their money back, right? Is to have an exit, so sell the company, or provide dividends along the way. And I would suggest, if you could, if you're creating a nonprofit where you don't want to have the force of an exit to satisfy your investors, is think about a dividend structure. If you can find investors who are happy with the dividend structure, then you don't have this endpoint that you're constantly managing. We could not find those investors. We found investors who wanted a financial return. We knew that. They were long holders. They were patient capitalists. So we, you know, they weren't pushing us. But you know, eventually, that's how they're going to return. So seven years. you know, And so we had been at it you know, about that long, longer than seven years. We had put stuff in place when we spun it out to make sure that when we sold it, actually, the nonprofit had a veto power. They could veto if they didn't like the buyer. So that's the board of the nonprofit. The board of the nonprofit. Not, not you. No, no, right. no, no. Because I'm now I'm on the you know potentially on the dark side, right? Like, right. right. I, I went I went from being the CEO dot org to being the CEO dot com. So yeah, so I no longer reported to the nonprofit board, and so the nonprofit board had the ability to veto the exit. The reason we sold was that um, we knew that we were going to. Uh, have to provide a financial return to our investors. And uh, the market was very hot. Um, and we thought that we could find someone that would continue the mission of Network for Good. And so we were able to achieve those three things. We found a partner who was very much aligned with our mission focus and demonstrated that. We were able to provide a fantastic financial return to our investors, including.org, who had spun it out initially, and now has this war chest to go and, you know, maybe that's the wrong metaphor, but (laughs) to go and serve. Peace chest. What's that? Peace chest. Peace chest, exactly, to go out and serve the greater good. And, and, you know, it's it's now back in the charitable, you know, space. Uh, What, What percentage did they own at time of sale? Without you know sharing too much information, they were the largest owner on a percentage basis. Were they a majority owner? No, because the people who put in twenty million dollars had picked up a big prepare. Had, nobody had majority. Yeah, no one investor had majority, uh, and the and the nonprofit had the most had the high, high, largest share. Did you create an auction? Uh, did you? We we hired a, an investment banker. Yeah. Um, uh, we hired an investment banker and ran a process. Just closed in January. And I happen to know the buyer. <laughs> I assume you were talking with Stu. Did you guys bond over marathoning at all? We did. We have yet to go for a run together. So I first met Stu in 2019 uh, when we raised our Series B, because we are considering every action as a buyer, actually, rather than doing a Series B. Um, and we chose to uh, continue to go after it ourselves with a uh Boathouse Capital out of uh, Philly. Camden Partners was our first investor. I should name them as well because they were our first investor and uh, both were really great uh, partners in private equity firms. Then when we ran the process that began in the second half of 2021, that's when I kind of, you know, met with Stu and uh, among others as part of our, uh, the sale of the company. Why'd you pick them? 
we picked uh, the company is called Bonterra, as you know, and uh, um, we picked Bonterra. Bonterra had just acquired, and I know you know this, but Bonterra just acquired Cyber Grants, Every Action, and Social Solutions, and put them together in August of twenty one, uh, August September twenty one. Apex Capital Partners is the private equity backer, and the reason we picked them was. In addition to running a competitive process and uh, them being, you know, among the highest bids, it was really the mission piece, um, and that where there was evidence that in a variety of ways. Uh, one, Bonterra is a public benefit corp in Delaware, uh, which is different. We were a C corp in New York uh, with B corp certification for the nerds out there, so that was evidence uh, of the focus on the mission and. Apex uh, was investing out of an impact fund, co-investing out of an impact fund. And uh, we met with the Bonterra leadership during the process to understand exactly how Bonterra was measuring impact across the company. And it was uh, just as, if not more significantly uh, sophisticated as was our impact measurement, probably more, I'd say more sophisticated as our impact measurement. So we felt good about how they're going to treat our customers. We also felt good about how uh, our employees were going to be treated because it was very much about growing who we were serving. You know, we were kind of the missing piece of the puzzle in terms of small nonprofits, as we discussed uh, for Bonterra. It wasn't kind of a slash and burn type of acquisition. It was very much of a growth acquisition. So, so far, so good. We're five or six months in and uh, continuing, the growth continues, uh, not only Bonterra, but of the Net for Good business unit within it. When you uh, introduced yourself at the top of this interview, you said former CEO. Uh, I'm now general manager of Network for Good within Bonterra. So, yeah, that's why I said former CEO of Network for Good. I'm still, I, I'm, I'm still you know, running Network for Good within Bonterra, but... It's an easier job because we have a lot of great functional leads within the company that are really carrying the, the, the majority of the burden. Um, and so I'm, I'm continuing to provide kind of the general manager role, but it's an easier job because I don't have to manage a board. And I only have one boss, boss instead of four now uh, in my current role. You've mentioned uh, some of the firms that were pulled together to make Bonterra, but there were also lots of acquisitions of nonprofit technology enterprises that preceded the acquisition of Network for Good. And so there's a lot of platforms now in the process of being ingested, I guess, by Bonterra. And I assume in the long run, a, a number of them will uh, find their end of life and land on whatever platforms remain. How is that part of it uh, sorting out? Remember I, at Anderson, my you know the, what bearing point put me to do work on was merger integration. So I, I just said my job's gotten easier, but that's the job of just running Network for Good. The merger integration is my primary job right now, right? Of Network for Good and the other companies. And as you said, Bonterra is more than just four companies; it's all the companies that those other companies had acquired as well, which were in various stages of ingestion themselves within those companies. You know, when I was at Arthur Anderson and I did merger integration, I had always said, you know when I was selling merger integration to for-profit companies, I'd say two-thirds of mergers fail, so you need us to make sure you have the best chance of success. It's even harder when you got 
not four, but depending on how you count them, seven or eight companies together. So you asked me what attracted us about uh, Bonterra as a, a landing place for Net for Good. This is the part, this is the phase that's the hardest, right? I mean, let's be honest. It's tough enough to put two companies together, let alone eight. Now, the good news is it's a growth story, right? And there's lots of compliments. And so you, we kind of structure it in kind of three paths. And I don't think I'm giving away any trade secrets here. And I think this is a good way to structure mergers. It's the same thing I would have told folks back in the 90s and to early 2000s when I was doing mergers is the first path is do no harm. So how do you not screw up the great thing you just acquired? So that's number one, right? That's not easy. That's not easy, you know, because you get people leaving, whatever. Uh, second one is just the integration stuff. Okay, where can we kind of just like integrate stuff so that there, there's some efficiencies and it just, you know, you have one email domain, not all these email addresses. And then the third thing is the kind of fun stuff is the better together. Hey, you know, someone like one, one you, know, you know, we're serving nonprofits and now we have both the software, say, for example, from uh, social solutions that has case management. So actually managing your constituents and you've got the fundraising software. Well, you know, on the fundraising software, you want to be able to create an impact report that tells your donors all the work you're doing. All that data is in the case management software. Wouldn't it be cool if we could kind of pull those two systems together and give your nonprofit an impact report, you know? So things like that, that's, that's where the fun stuff, but those are worth the, the three streams that uh, are, you know, consume most of my time now on, on the other side within Bonterra as, hey, how do we do no harm to net for goods business unit? And there are other folks in the other companies who are responsible for that, for those respective business units. Um, and then how do we integrate them? And then how do we find the uh, ways where we can be better together and serve our nonprofits even better than we do today and other and other uh, customers? As you can imagine, close to my heart is the political campaign part of Bonterra, which had something to do with, it was not something that the very long tail of that market was ever well served, tended to be the state legislative and up type campaigns. Is there a use for the network for good platform in the campaign space? Has that been looked at at all? Could that be a place to, to grow a long tail solution? That's a great question. I would say my answer would be, and I, I'm unqualified to make to, to make this answer. I'd ask my product guy, but but I would say this. It's unlikely that the product as is built today, um, like that you would want to necessarily just customize the software to serve smaller budget political candidates, right? But the design principles that we used to build Network for Good so that it was usable, right, by folks who might not be as well-resourced, not just monetarily, but just technical proficiency. Because if you're not well-resourced financially, it's hard to find the technological consultants who can, because the software can be pretty sophisticated. And a lot of software, this enterprise software is built to do so many things that it's paralyzing for smaller users who are not as adept. And so I would say that the design principles of like, you know, simplicity, like we talk about trying to design in simplicity, confidence, because that's a part of it, right? You're afraid to hit that send button, you know what I mean? And insights, right? Insights for the smaller uh, political candidates. That, that's, I would leverage kind of our approach probably. And I do think there'd be an opportunity there. So it sounds like a substantial amount of money went to the .org 
as you. Yes. Can you just tell me a little bit about what they are now doing so, since they do not have the, the ownership anymore of networkforgood.com? Do they A, still have a relationship with the .com? And yeah, what so are they doing with the money? One of the things I didn't get into in our discussion was, and it was key, but I just, I just wanted to be you know, cognizant of time. .org not, was not only an owner, but it provided a key uh, part of, of, of a business relationship with .com. It is structured as a donor-advised fund, .org is, but it uses it in a unique way. It enables us to power giving, say, on Facebook, which we do. It enables us to send a donation to any charity, right? Any legitimate charity. The relationship with .org, without getting into the weeds on it, enables us to process a donation for any 501c3 charity. And so we had, as part of our separation, structured very clear business arrangements between .org and .com and service level agreements and revenue streams with .org. They continued to serve Network for Goods as part of Bonterra. And so they continue to do that, right? So that's one piece. But now they've got this peace chest, as we use the term instead of war chest, of millions of dollars to figure out what more can they do. And the thing that's really cool about it is in any business, there's more things than you can ever do. You have more opportunities than you can ever get after. And so the key is how do you prioritize? I mentioned serving small nonprofits rather than trying to serve consumers. The really cool part is now .org with this peace chest has the ability to explore things that maybe there is not a viable business opportunity to do it, right? Like you can't make a business out of it, but it creates good. They don't need to have a viable business. They could fund it with their millions of dollars and maybe it has a small revenue stream, but it doesn't cover. Do you have any relationship still with a .org? Well, I mean, I have the same relationship I do before in terms of like uh, working with them, but I don't, I'm not an employee of the .org nor on the board uh, and never was. And they just hired a CEO, a capable CEO to help not only continue to, you know, steward the business relationship they have with Bonterra, but also explore, okay, how we can we increase our mission of driving more donations to small charities? Really, we say generosity unleashed. Like, how do we unleash generosity on a massive scale? And the really cool thing about them having this larger peace chest now as a result of this transaction is, again, they can pursue things that might that a for-profit might not be able to get after because there's just not a viable business model to support it. It's pretty common for someone in your situation after an acquisition to not have long duration at the acquirer. Like you've been through this before in a certain sense with Arthur Anderson. What do you think your future is and where do you want to go with the rest of your career in life? I feel a little bit like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill, but that's not the end. I, I need to get the rock settled just right in the crater. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, Sisyphus so, never, that never happens for Sisyphus, by the way. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. Sisyphus never got the rock up to the top. No. And then he never had to think about whether he wanted to keep it from rolling down the other side of the hill. So I want to keep it from rolling down the side of the other hill. I want to get it, you know, settled, uh, network for good, settled within Bonterra, Right. Um, and then I'm just, I'm going to explore, you know, there may be opportunities within Bonterra for me to go on once we've, you know, sufficiently integrated Network for Good um, into uh, uh, Bonterra. There may be positions within Bonterra that interest me to uh, scale things. If not, uh, then I'd really like this kind of next stage. I very much want it to be continued to be focused on impact. 
I'm, I'm definitely going to be continuing to focus on impact. Um, that could take form in a variety of ways. I could find a company uh, that interests me, um, that has social impact. I don't think I'll ever be the leader of a business that doesn't have a social mission or a nonprofit that doesn't have an earned revenue strategy. I'm kind of hooked on social business or social enterprise. Um, so that's a possibility. Um, I, I definitely want to make an impact with the money I made from the transaction. I've always been very interested in impact investing. Now I can actually walk the walk rather than just talking the talk. <laughs> and so I'm getting involved in that space uh, with some of the you know, guys like Jed Emerson and Tim Freundlich, who are, you know, legends in the field, in my opinion, and then serving on more boards. I've, I've always served on nonprofit boards, but I'd be interested in lending my experience base to, you know, smaller for, you know, for profits that have a social mission. Uh, so those are kind of the, the, the things I'm looking at. And aside from that, you know, tinkering around here on the farm and working on carpentry projects, because uh, there's a lifetime of projects up here. Well, I definitely share that interest with you. Bill, it's, it's been Great to hear your story and super interesting for me. I appreciate your your willingness to hear it. Did I fail to ask you a question I should have? No, I'll, 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 I'll leave with two, just kind of two thoughts. And one, one I've already said and one I don't think I have. Um, one is, you know, is I mentioned if you have a market-based solution to solve a social problem, by all means, get after it and leave the charitable dollars because there are plenty of things, social problems that don't have a business model to fix it. I mean, I just on that, just on that point, yeah. like I have talked to people who are organized as nonprofits in a political tech space, let's say, who I would say feel that they have a socially superior model because they're nonprofit, because of an allergy to capitalism or something like that. What do you make of that? I think that was once true. I, I don't believe that to be true. And it's changing more and more every day. That's becoming less and less true every day with the uh, understanding and acknowledgments of social businesses. I mean, people say like, if you have a, you know, a double bottom line, doesn't that necessarily make it more complicated? So for in other words, if you're a nonprofit, it's purely the social mission. And if you have an earned revenue strategy, great. And so someone argued that that's a little bit more pure than a for-profit, you know, because you have to choose. And I'd say, you know, that can be true, but where you can really find magic is where you have, there's a term that's developed that people use in the impact investing space called collinearity. If your money goal and your mission goals are on the same trajectory and you don't really need to make a decision between the two, and that was true of Net for Good, in my opinion, then that's the best way to go. So I, I can understand having a nonprofit status you know, but for me, I really feel like there's some intangible benefits to having a for-profit if you can have a business model and some tangible ones too. What about the world of private equity? And like, so Bonterra, you mentioned owned by private equity firm and it's, you know, it's a little different than a lot of for-profits because of the things you mentioned before in terms of, uh, impact focus, right. But do, does that, do, do you think there's legitimate concerns about a company that's owned by private equity as opposed to owned by founders or investors motivated uh, by other things than capital growth? 
Well, what would you say the difference is between the founder you describe and the private equity you describe? They're both human beings that have, you know, different well, private equity of- firm has is not human. It's not it's a it's not a individual person. It's a I see what you're it, saying. It's, it's an own it's an ownership structure that that has lots of enterprises that's seeking to maximize their return over time. And if you're owned by someone like you and you're not selling, you might be a little different. Well, about I think you hit on a really important point because I'd say this, it's still a group of individuals, right? At the end of the day, it's got limited partners who are investing in, in this fund that has companies in it. And it gets back to why we ch- chose Apex is on an impact fund, your LPs want more than just to make money, right? And so you are being, you know, measured. That's why I kind of asked, what's the difference between a founder and that? So you're right, it's a group of individuals, but still an individuals who have a value system and they're on some side of the spectrum in terms of how much are they focused in terms of impact and how much are focused so, on generating. So maybe term. your answer is it depends on which individuals or which private equity firm. Which private equity firm. And that's why I'm so excited about the impact investing space because it enables you to you know, because it, it implicit in your question kind of assumes that private equity firms are at the, at the end of the day about making money, which, you know, is true. But when you start to get into impact investing, there's a spectrum of that in terms of like, well, you know, some of them aren't willing to trade impact in order to make money. You know, they want both. Right. That's where I kind of feel like, yes, generally speaking, that's one of the challenges. And that's why I said, if you're an entrepreneur who's seeking outside capital, and you want to avoid this focus on the exit, find somebody who's willing to do a dividend, they receive a dividend in perpetuity, or find someone whose values aligned with you on the exit, that they're about impact equally with, you know, financial return. You were going to make a second point that I interrupted. Second point is uh, on the same topic we're talking about, actually. And this is just like as individuals, uh, and, and, and this is changing, but, uh, you know, not fast enough for me is, this concept of that's still this binary concept that we give away our money to do good and have a social return, right? Generally speaking, and we invest our money to have a financial return. And in some cases, not only have a social return, but do damage to the planet and others. And so breaking that binary is is something that I just want to encourage people to focus on that. When I do videos of it, I tear a dollar bill in half and I say, this is what we're doing. We're taking this dollar and we're losing all our money in the hopes of getting some kind of social good. And in this half of the dollar, we're investing our money, doing no social good, sometimes negative. I hope I'm making money. And I just encourage people to think differently. It's not a binary choice. You know, you can have your cake and eat it too, or make different trade points along the way, you know, between doing good and making money. I think that's a, a good point on which to call this interview to a close more or less. Is there anything else you want to say? No, I really enjoyed it. Thanks very much. Uh, I've enjoyed, enjoyed the conversation. I have too. That was Bill Strathman. Bill is at bonterratech.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. 
You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.